Well, all right, we have some incredibly, incredibly interesting things to talk about today. We're continuing with our study through the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be starting around verse 11. Where we left off last week, we have Paul writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, to the Ephesians, and he's told them that Jesus, after he was resurrected from the grave, gave gifts to men in the form of specific people to the church. God gave specific people to the church as gifts to the church for the purpose of building up you and I, the saints in our faith. And so we're going to examine starting today with what those gifts are. Starting in verse 11, we'll jump right in. It says, And he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles. And let's talk about apostles for a little bit. The first fill-in on your outline is this. The apostolic ministry is a governing ministry, and it refers to those who are sent out as spiritual statesmen to establish ministries. The word apostle doesn't mean super-duper Christian. The word apostle simply means sent one or one who is sent. So you can't really wake up one day and just decide, hey, um, I thought about it, and uh, I'd like you guys to refer to me as apostle. Jeff, please, has a certain ring to it that I really like. You have to be sent, and the special anointing that is on apostles is the ability to break new ground in the spiritual world and establish the kingdom of God, establish churches, establish ministries in places that need more or where one does not exist. There's a special anointing on the apostle that enables him to break through hard spiritual ground and establish the work of God in a place. There are three kinds of apostles. Firstly, God the Father appointed one apostle, his sent one, Jesus Christ. Jesus then appointed 12 apostles. Those were the 12 disciples. And these are often referred to as uppercase or capital A apostles. You have lots of apostles today, but these were the uppercase A apostles, the original 12, the first 12 And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit appointed and still appoints apostles today. The Holy Spirit raises them up on the earth today for the purpose of expanding the kingdom of God. And in the Bible, we see Andronicus and Junia, Timothy and Titus, Barnabas and Paul, and a host of others who were not part of the original 12, but were undoubtedly apostles. Paul himself, an apostle, we remember, he introduces himself by the will of God, an apostle by the will of God. The Holy Spirit appoints people. Those are apostles. The next in the list is some prophets. Some prophets. The prophetic ministry is a guiding ministry. It's a guiding ministry. Simplest way to say it is this is a special gift that some people have that allows them to speak the word of the Lord at the leading of the Holy Spirit. Simply put, they provide God's word at God's time in God's place. Prophecy is a gift, and it's actually a gift that the Bible tells us that we should all desire. 1 Corinthians 14.1, it says, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Especially that you may prophesy. Paul says this is a gift you should desire and ask the Lord for. When you have the gift of prophecy, only one thing is needed to be obedient. It's not a smoke machine and lasers. I have the word of the Lord. Come out of the smoke. It's not what you need to be an effective prophet. What you need to be an effective prophet is obedience. Obedience. That's the one must have for the prophet. The prophet is to speak only what God has told them to speak 
without adding to it or taking away from it. That is their only role in the process. It's their only role in the process. And I want to help you out. This is something that's really going to grow you in your faith. I want to tell you what a real prophetic word looks like. A real prophetic word from the Lord always meets these criteria. This is how you can know. Firstly, it is specific. It is specific. Let me show you what I don't mean. This is not specific, but this happens in church all the time. Wow, wow. Guys, something just hit me. There's somebody here this morning. There's something in your life you've been praying about for a long, long time. You've been praying for a breakthrough, and it just feels like that breakthrough is never going to come. But God wants you to know. Now, <clears throat> see, that might sound specific, but how many of us does that apply to? If you're not putting your hand up, just put your hand up, because that's all of you, okay? That's all of you. That is not specific. Or, or another favorite one is, is someone here. You have a, um, a secret sin that nobody knows about, and um, God wants you to know that he knows. <laughs> how did he know? The man of God knows. He's going to say my name any minute, right? That's not, not specific, not specific, you know. When I was a little kid growing up in the Pentecostal church and a prophet would come to the church, I never wanted to talk to him because I always thought they were going to be like, good to meet you. Oh my gosh, I know exactly what you did. And so I never wanted to talk to the prophet. I was always like, let's just let's go home. We don't need to say hi. We'll just wave as we go, you know. And um, that's not specific. That's not specific. Specific is uh, a name. A specific person, a specific incident, specific place, specific time. We've had incidents before where where people in our church were learning how to use their gift of prophecy, and they would say something like, "Um, you probably shouldn't take uh, I-95 home indefinitely because I'm seeing an accident in your future. It's like, what? Am I supposed to live on the back roads for the rest of my life? This is the will of God? A specific word would be, don't go on Tuesday. At 10, there's going to be an accident. Thank you. Got it. In the calendar. So a word of God is specific. Specific. I mean, I could, I could really do it all day. It's just like there's a single woman here somewhere who's been praying for a husband. Oh, wow, how did I know, right? There's a single guy here this morning. He's been, I just, how did I know? I could do it all day. Um, secondly, it lines up with the word of God. It lines up with the word of God. Please, please, please know your Bibles. Know your Bibles. Don't be cool with the prophet who's like, hey, God wants you to know it's cool if you live with your girlfriend. No problem. Holy Spirit gave you a special bypass. Cool. It's got to line up with the Word of God. If you don't know what the Word of God says, ask somebody to show you. Ask somebody to help you. It's never going to contradict the Word of God, ever. Thirdly, it edifies the hearer's relationship with the Lord. It edifies. It builds them up. It encourages them. It increases their intimacy with God. That's the result. They're built up in it. Now, you can still be edified through a corrective word, but it's never God's first intent that a prophet would come to you with a corrective word. You know why? Because God is not a gossip. God is not like, hey, if you see Susie, tell her that I said 
She needs to get her stuff together. That's not, that's not how God rolls. God's going to go to Susie with what he wants her to know. Now, when does the prophet come into the picture? Susie doesn't want to listen. Susie won't hear it. She's become so numb to the Holy Spirit, she can't hear him anymore. Remember the story of David and Nathan. David has had Bathsheba's husband killed in battle. He thinks he's got away with it, hard-hearted, won't hear God. I know God was talking to David. So God sends Nathan the prophet. Nathan tells him a story about a man who stole another man's only lamb and killed it. One of the most epic moments in the Bible David gets outraged by this story and says, tell me where this man is. And Nathan just says, you are that man. Can't even imagine that. It is better to heed the word of the Lord than have the prophet bring it to you in correction. I promise. But sometimes because God is a loving father, he will not let us walk in disobedience forever. He will bring it to light. He will expose it or he'll send the prophet if we won't hear him. But the end result of that is repentance, and repentance still edifies your relationship with the Lord. The end result is you're closer to him. A vague word that stirs up fear does not do that. If somebody says, hey, I just want you to know, I'm sensing right now, Satan's really out to get you. Have a great week. (laughs) I I don't really feel built up in my faith. You know, I don't really feel built up in my faith. So that's the criteria for a real word of prophecy from the Lord. Thirdly, some evangelists. The evangelistic ministry is a gathering ministry. And it refers to people who have a special gift for bringing people into the kingdom of God. Now, we all have a duty to share the gospel. We all have a duty to some degree to be evangelists. I think we all understand that. But the gift of evangelism is a next level thing. I don't know if you've ever hung out with anybody who has this gift. They're constantly doing things that mortify you. They're like, hey, look, that person is sitting on a bench. Let's go tell them the gospel. You're like, what? You know, they're like, hey, look at this person. They're here in front of us. Let's tell them the gospel. They just have no fear at all, and they can do it all day. And when you're like, well, um, um, they don't even understand your hesitation. Because it comes so naturally for them. These are the people who are always telling stories like, yeah, I was talking to my waitress about Jesus like it's no big business. And we're all like, how did you get your waitress to talk about Jesus? How did you do that? And it just happens all the time. These are people who have the gift of evangelism. I would love to have the gift of evangelism. I just have the calling like every believer to be an evangelist. The calling that we all have. Which means I'm usually terrified, but I do it out of obedience to God. You can usually spot churches that are pastored by evangelists. And this this is really, really important, especially if you've been a believer for maybe more than a year. You can always spot churches that are pastored by evangelists because there's always a lot of new believers coming into the church. What often happens is the pastor will have a laser focus on getting people saved. And he's honestly more interested in that than he is in discipling people once they're saved constantly wants to see new people saved, new people saved. And when you've been in a church like that for a few years, you'll often get frustrated because you're thinking, I'm, I'm grateful I'm saved, but I'm not, I'm not growing. I need to grow. And what I want to encourage you with is in that moment, don't be critical of the pastor. Understand that he is an evangelist. He's a gift to the body of Christ. 
And if you need to grow, and that's a valid thing, you should leave graciously, quietly, and go somewhere where you can grow. But thank the Lord that we have evangelists in the kingdom of God. Paul would say some have an anointing to gather, some have an anointing to teach and grow. And it might not always be the same person who has an anointing to gather and an anointing to disciple and teach those people. Often it's not the same person. And that's how God has built the kingdom of God. But they're a gift to the kingdom of God because they're able to gather far more effectively than the teacher is. They really, really are. So just keep that in mind. If you ever find yourself in a situation where you're frustrated and you're thinking, I'm just not growing, and just say, you know what? They're an evangelist. They have the gift of evangelism. Either God is going to give you a heart to join them in that, or God is going to say, hey, you need to grow. So you need to go find somebody who has a gift who can help you grow. But they're all gifts to the body of Christ, and we're grateful for all of them. But God probably doesn't want you to change that pastor. He doesn't want them to change. He made them that way. Fourthly, he gave some to be pastors. The pastoral ministry is a shepherding ministry, a shepherding ministry. That's the picture Scripture gives us of pastoring. Pastors have a heart for people. They love to pray with people. They love to encourage people. They love to counsel people. They love to build them up. They, they have a gift for making the fatherless spiritually and emotionally feel like they have a spiritual father. They can create that sense, a giftedness of being a pastor. They're the kind of person usually they just love to hug people, love to hug people all the time, have all the time in the world. When you talk to them, you never feel like they got to go anywhere else. They're just there with you as long as you want to talk. And then fifthly, teachers. The teaching ministry is an instructing ministry, an instructing ministry of heralding God's word. It's proclaiming God's word to God's people so that they can understand it and grow in faith. Because Romans 10, 17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I would believe, as we look at our church, this is probably my most prominent giftedness, I would like to believe, is that I have a gift for teaching. And that's one of our core values here at New Hope. You can't have faith if you don't know what you have faith in. The only way you can have faith is to know what the word of God says. Trust God. What does that mean? I don't know. It looks great on my keychain. But you need to know what the Word of God says so that you can build your life on what the Word of God says. So as life comes at you, you're able to say, I know what God says about this. I know what God says about this. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, he counteracted Satan's attacks with the Word of God. That's what the Word of God does. It builds faith because you build your life on it. And then you see God fulfill his promises in your own life. But it all starts with knowing and understanding what the Word of God says and having it in you. Everything flows out of that. There's some debate among theologians as to whether pastor-teacher is is one office, one position, it's both in one, or if it's two. I I tend to believe it can be either or. A person can be a, a, a pastor, a pastor and a teacher, or just a teacher. And the reason I say this is is we all know probably people who have a giftedness for being pastors. They're wonderful to be around. But when they teach, it is a struggle to stay awake. You ever known somebody like that? They love Jesus. Godly, godly person. But when they get up on stage, people only put up with it because they're such a great person. But the truth is they're thinking, you, you don't have the knack, man. Person has a gift of pastoring, not a gift of teaching. Then you have other people who have a giftedness of teaching, but not a gift of pastoring. When they teach, God moves in your life. You can sense the authority of God on them. 
But if you want to have a counseling session with them, they're the ones struggling to stay awake. You know, you're like, oh, my life is falling apart. And they're like, yeah. yeah. You know, or the teacher will just, they'll say, oh, my life is falling apart. And the teacher will just say, well, the Bible says, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Glad we had this talk. <laughs> That's sort of it. Because the teacher just says, this is what the Word of God says. Are you doing it? No? All right, come back when you are. But the pastor says, hey, you know, tell me about it. Let's pray. Let's pray. Tell me about it again for the sixth time. I'm ready to listen. That's, that's the pastor gift. So I think it can be either or or both. Pastor, pastor, teacher, or just teacher. But the church needs all these gifts, amen? Church, church needs them all. You need all of them. All of them are gifts to the church for the same purpose, and that purpose is told to us in verse 12. You want to underline this in your Bible. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. For the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. For the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. This is one of the key verses on the church in the entire Bible. Today, businesses love to outsource. Why do something yourself in your own house if you can hire somebody cheaply and efficiently to do it for you. What am I talking about? I'm I'm talking about the religious spirit inside of all of us that tends to rise up and just say, just give me the bottom line, just tell me the rules to follow, just tell me the boxes to check, and I'll do that. There's something inside of us that runs to that instead of a relationship with Jesus. Just give me the bare minimum, let me check the boxes so I can feel good about myself. The Israelites were happy to let Moses be the one who went up to the mountain to meet God. None of them said, hey, can we go with you? They all just said, hey, that's great. You go go do the God thing, and then you just tell us the bottom line what we're supposed to do. They had no interest in knowing God for themselves. And in the modern church, there's the great temptation to say, you know, we have pastors. We have teachers. We have professionals to do the work of the ministry for us. I'll show up. I'll listen, but I I don't need to do that. I'll leave that to the professionals. And the picture that Paul paints for us in Ephesians is very different. Paul says, no, 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 no. See, all those gifts to the church, pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, they're all there to build you up in your faith. They're all there to equip you to be ministers. Because the church is much more effective when instead of having four or five people doing ministry, you have hundreds of people doing ministry. I don't live in your house. I don't go to your school. I don't go to your work. I don't know your friends. Those are your spheres of influence. Those are the places you're called to be ministers. Church is not where you come so that somebody else can be a minister. It's where you come to be built up yourself as a minister, built up in your holy faith. We live in a city where less than 3% of the population would consider themselves Christians including Catholics, less than 3%. The great irony of this is the places we go to missions trips on have a higher percentage of believers than we do right here. And nobody's, nobody's ever really clicked on that. It's like, hey, we're going to Mexico. Great. There's like 30% of the population there are believers. You know? We got 3% right here that identify themselves as believers. And that environment can be incredibly intimidating, can suck the spiritual life out of you, can drain you. 
That's why I want to encourage you. Be here every single Sunday you can because you need a fresh revelation of Jesus every week. You need to be filled up with the Holy Spirit every week. You need to have communion every week and be reminded of what Jesus has done for you so you don't get bogged down in your sin and think that you can't be forgiven. We need that because we are vastly in the minority. And if we're going to be effective, we need to be filled up with the Holy Spirit on a regular basis. Remember that we're the church of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. Our ultimate destiny is to be the bride of Christ. And the church exists for three main reasons. Firstly, to glorify Jesus. This is why we sing praises. This is why we offer prayer to him. The first purpose of the church is to glorify Jesus. It's what we're going to do forever. We're not going to feed the hungry forever. Even the orphan, even the widow, we're not going to take care of them forever. Those are things we're called to do on the earth now, but our ultimate destiny and our first priority above everything else is to glorify Jesus and be a blessing to him. Secondly, to edify his people, to build up one another. This is why we study the word of God. And thirdly, to evangelize the lost. This is why we preach salvation. This is why Jesus created the church. And contrary to what many think, the church does not exist primarily to evangelize. It's not the first calling of the church. First calling of the church is to build up the saints. You and I so that we can be ministers of the gospel. And there can be an even greater harvest because of that. In the book of Acts, we see the early church hearing the apostles teach, taking communion together, and then they go out, and the accusation against them was they are turning the world upside down. That's what they said about the early church. They would gather together, hear the apostles teach, take communion, go out, turn the world upside down. That's what God did through the early church. If you want to be effective for Christ out there... You need to be edified in here. There are no lone rangers in the kingdom of God. There's no mavericks. You don't make it alone. You won't be effective if you're running on fumes out in your world. You aren't being regularly filled up with the Holy Spirit. You won't be effective out there if you're rarely in here. I promise. With 100% consistency. It's a true principle. Verse 13. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Our goal is to be like Jesus. And that is the Father's highest goal for us, that we would become like Christ. And Jesus didn't spend all his time in the temple. He was among the people impacting the world. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. But the secret of Jesus' ministry is that Jesus always, 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 always ministered out of the overflow of his relationship with the Father. Always. Jesus just didn't go out there and do it alone. You'll notice that even Jesus had other believers around him. He had the disciples. He was turning them into believers. But he surrounded himself with people. Jesus, there can be no doubt, as he went out and ministered from the age of 30 to 33, I know this, he emptied himself every day. He must have been exhausted at the end of every day. The only way he stayed on track was by being filled up out of his relationship with God. The Bible paints a picture of Jesus getting up daily early in the morning to go pray 
be with his father, leaving the disciples sleeping. Because Jesus Christ himself knew that he needed to be filled up. We would be crazy to say, I don't need to. How long has it been since you've been to church? Three, three weeks. But you know what? I'm out in the world making a difference. No, you're not. You're out in the world being chewed up and spat out. Because you're not ministering out of the overflow of your heart. You can't share what you don't have. You can't share the Holy Spirit with others when it's not in you. You're not full. Out of your daily walk with God, out of your weekly times with the body of Christ, you'll be filled up, and you won't find yourself ministering on empty. I want you to notice the, the first word in verse 13 is till. All of these gifts are given to the church until. Until what? Until we get to heaven, because once you're in heaven, there's no need for pastors. There's no need for teachers. There's no need for evangelists. There's no need for prophets. There's no need for any of that, because why would you need to hear about Jesus when he's right there? So these are temporary gifts to the church. Let's take a look at verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Paul says that one of the defining characteristics of a mature believer is that they don't get caught up in winds of doctrine. Now, what is a wind of doctrine? A wind of doctrine is basically a new idea that sweeps through Christianity. And what you'll find is that they're never actually new ideas. This has been going on ever since Jesus left the earth at the end of his ministry, after his resurrection. And somebody will come along and say, God's doing a new thing. And it'll be something totally crazy. And immature believers will get caught up in it and say, really, I want to be a part of that. And this happens all the time. For a while, angels were the big thing. Angels were the really big thing. God's doing a new thing through angels. And there are thousands of believers who decided that angels are basically adding to the Bible. They're bringing new revelation. And you can take it to the bank. It's just as official as the Bible. But Galatians 1.8 says, But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. A few years back when I was in Florida, there, there was an evangelist named Todd Bentley. And Todd Bentley would heal people by casting the demons out of them. And in order to cast the demons out, he would physically punch or kick you. I mean, like, seriously, like, <laughs> I've seen him do it to, like, old ladies and stuff like that. Like, come out! And you hear it, and you're like, oh, man. Listen, thousands and thousands of people went to this. He set up a tent in Lakeland, Florida. 3,000 people there every night for almost six solid months, flying in from all over the world for the special anointing of Todd Bentley. It, it's madness. It's madness. Even though 1 Corinthians 14.40 says, let all things be done decently and in order. People just get caught up in it. Immature believers caught up in the, the latest wind of doctrine and and I always hear the same rhetoric. People always say, hey, you know, it might be weird, but as long as God's moving, hallelujah, right? It's immature. The Word of God says, 
Jesus speaking, my sheep recognize my voice and they follow me. If it doesn't line up with scripture, somebody is moving, but it ain't Jesus. It ain't Jesus. If someone says, God is moving in a new way, find it in the Gospels. Show me Jesus doing it. Show me the apostles continuing it in the book of Acts. Show it to me in the epistles being continued through the early church. Mature believers test all things against the word of God. That's why we have the word of God. Even today, I'll give you two big winds of doctrine going through today. One is the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel says, follow Jesus, he's going to make you wealthy. That's what he wants to do. Wealthy, healthy, happy. That's what it's all about. Just name it and claim it. Right? That's one doctrine, one wind of doctrine blowing through the church right now. Go buy a Cadillac. Just make payments on it. Jesus is going to take care of it because he wants you to be wealthy. And then on the other side, you've got the equally crazy poverty gospel. These are people who've decided, no, you know what's really godly is being poor. What? Yeah, being poor is godly. And sometimes you say, well, you're only poor because you're lazy. That's not godly. That's not spiritual. God didn't say, hey, hey, this is what you need to do. People take crazy things like Jesus telling a man, sell all you have and give it to the poor and decide that this is a commandment for all of us. When Jesus said that to the man to simply reveal to him that he loved his money more than he loved Jesus. But they don't do the research. So people decide, you know what, I'm poor. Oh, I must be super godly. That must be why I'm poor. I'm spiritual because I'm poor. There's nothing spiritual about being poor. There's nothing spiritual about being rich. What Jesus says is love me more than money. You can be a poor person and be as obsessed with money as a rich person. Both people can go to bed at night thinking about it. Jesus says I should be in front of money in your mind. Love me first. Seek my kingdom first. Winds of doctrine blowing through the church. And one of the favorite verses of immature believers is 1 Thessalonians 5.19. You ever heard this? If you've been to a Pentecostal church, you've heard this. Do not quench the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Well, they're, they're getting high and claiming that it makes them more open to the things of God. Hey, don't quench the spirit, bro. Don't quench the spirit. This is very interesting. Keep reading for the next two verses. This is what the next two verses say. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. That is the balance. That is the balance. God has something fresh and powerful he wants to do in you. It's something fresh and powerful he wants to do in me. Something he wants to do in our church. But it's not going to contradict the word of God. Jesus says this is the balance. Don't quench the spirit. Don't shut down the gifts of the Spirit. Don't take away any room for God to move in your church and in your life. Don't quench the Spirit, but test all things. Test all things. If you only do the first one, you're going to get caught up in some crazy business. Crazy business, I promise. And if you only do the other one without being open to the Spirit, you're going to miss out on what God wants to do in your life and in your church. Don't quench the spirit. Test all things. That's the balance. God, God kind of knew that we'd get weird with this stuff, right? He just knew. He just knew, man. You guys, I put it right there in black and white, but I can see this coming a mile away. You guys are just going to get weird with this stuff. You're going to get into some really weird stuff. So I'm going to tell you right now. Just read, read the Bible. Read the Bible. 
know what my word says, and then you won't get into weird stuff. If you can't find an answer on something, e- email us. Seriously, email us. Call us. We'll show you in the word of God. And that, that's what you need to ask. Show me in the word of God. Not tell me what you think. Show me in the word of God. Show me in the word of God. Verse 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. We're drawn to a, a crackling fire in a fireplace on a cold winter's night because it provides both light and warmth. And such is the perfect combination of truth and love. Truth without love is like the light of a fire without the warmth. Love without truth is like the heat of a fire without light. Truth without love makes people cold in the light. And love without truth makes people stumble in the dark. We need both. You can write this down. If you love someone, you'll tell them the truth in a loving way. This is such a core concept for us, speaking the truth in love. If you love someone, you will tell them the truth. You want to know who a real friend is? A real friend is the one who tells you when you got a booger hanging out your nose. That's the real friend, right? That's the real friend. Not a real friend who's like, ah, it's awkward, I don't want to deal with it. That's why scripture says, listen, the real friend says, hey, outside of Christ, you are facing an eternal separation from him. It's not a real friend who says, you know, it's kind of awkward. I don't want to bring the topic up. It's awkward. You know what's awkward is being in heaven while they're in hell. That's awkward. And you never told them. You never told them. Love tells the truth. But love is in there because you do it in a loving way. You don't go protest outside their house. Turn or burn. You don't do that. There's no love in that. If you have no love, they're never going to be interested in the truth. They're never going to be interested in the truth. Always share the truth in love. This is another one of our church's key verses. Grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Are you, are you growing? Are you, are you becoming more like Jesus? Grow up. This winds of doctrine thing, man. Every time this happens, it's always amazing because there's always people that you thought, man, that person is mature. They've been walking with Jesus forever. And a wind of doctrine blows through and they're caught up in it like that. And suddenly it's revealed that, man, time passing doesn't make you know Jesus more. It's not like time just passes and you become a more mature believer. Knowing God makes you a more mature believer. And that over time grows you up. And Paul says, I want you guys to grow. I don't want you to be at the same place in a year that you are now. How sad if 10 years from now you're at the same place that you are now. You're only trusting God with small things like you are now. How sad. Grow up. Grow up in the faith. And and this is what I want to encourage you with. If you'll commit to being an active part of this fellowship, if you'll make church a priority, if you'll make serving a priority, if you'll make being an active part of the body, being in a growth group, getting connected with other believers, if you do that, I guarantee one year from now you will not be the same person you are now. That's an absolute guarantee because you can't take in the word of God week in, week out. You can't be in the presence of God week in, week out and stay the same person. Don't be the same person in a year that you are right now.
Let God grow you up in the faith. Speaking of Christ in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. We've talked about this a lot, that God has provided in this congregation right here everything we need, everything we need, if we'll all do our part, if we'll all serve to be a blessing to one another. But I want you to notice this, right at the end of verse 16, you might want to underline it, underline the word itself, because it says, for the edifying of who? Itself in love. Once more, Paul doesn't say, hey, use all your gifts and serve so that People outside the church can be blessed by you. Very interesting. Paul says the edifying of itself. He says serve so that the body, each one of us, can be grown up in the faith. Because Paul knows that you can't get it backwards. You can't think, man, going out there will cause me to grow. Paul says, no, listen, you grow up here as a part of the church, and that makes you effective out there. If you do it the other way around, you're going to get chewed up and spit out because you're not going to know who you are in Christ. You're not going to be full of the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be ministering out of the overflow. You're going to be discouraged. Get filled up and go out. That's the pattern that Paul speaks about. Church is primarily about us growing up in Christ. It's primarily about us growing up in Christ. We cannot offer the world something we don't have. That's the core principle. Cannot offer the world what you don't have in yourself. Jesus understood this deeply. He realized that if he met every need presented to him, if he healed every sick person but became disconnected from the Father, then it was all a waste and it was all meaningless. You can do endless works for Jesus, but if you become disconnected from him, it's worthless. It means nothing. It's just works. It's just effort. In verse 17, Paul says, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind. I love that phrase, in the futility of their mind. We know as believers that the highest level of understanding any human being can have is spiritual. We understand that what takes place in the spiritual affects what happens in the physical. The spiritual is a higher plane than the physical. And if you understand the spiritual, you have insight into all things. All things. But we live in a world where most intellectual establishments consider the mind, the intellect, the highest form of understanding you can have. There's an abundance of intellectual geniuses that are spiritual simpletons. They fail to grasp even the simplest spiritual concepts. Paul says that these people are living in the futility of their mind, ruled by and making decisions with only their mind and its limitations. It's futile. Paul says don't live like that. You have the Holy Spirit in your life. Be led by the Spirit. I always think about incredibly brilliant men like Stephen Hawking and some of the world's Carl Sagan and some of the world's preeminent theorists about the origins of the universe. And they're blind because they refuse to accept even a spiritual possibility. 
you have any idea what bad science it is to cross something off the board before you've disproved it, to simply say that is not acceptable that that would go on the board. And the more you delve into astrophysics, you find guys proposing things like, listen, we're actually one reality as a part of seven alternative realities. And the theories literally, when you sit there as a believer, become so outlandish that that you end up saying, I'm a believer because it requires less faith than what you're proposing. (laughs) I mean, really, I'm sorry, I lack your faith because what you're proposing is, is... crazy, you know? There's an infinite number of universes in which every possible uh, scenario of every person's life is played out. Based on what? Um, I did some numbers on my calculator. It's like, what? Are you, you for real? Possible theory. Possible theory. There's a God and he made it. No, no, no. I'll never forget. I've shared this before. Stephen Hawking, it was about a year or two years ago, came out and said, oh, you know what? There doesn't need to be a creator for the origin of the universe because there's such a law as gravity. One of the smartest men in the world completely neglecting the idea of, well, where'd gravity come from? (laughs) But blind, he's like, I've got it. I've solved it. I've solved it. You know, I always think of like the ideas, you guys ever watched House? You ever watched that show? And in, in House, when they're trying to solve a disease, they always have a whiteboard up. And then we start putting ideas on the board, and it's never lupus. So they start, like, uh, writing things down. And what science does today, the smartest men in the world, the first thing they do is they write God, and they put a line through it. No discussion. It's just not an option. It's just not an option. Just not an option. That's such bad science. Such bad science. But they're blind. They're blind. That's, that's why I want to encourage you, always remember, man, build yourself up for your own faith. Do courses on apologetics. Build your faith up. But remember, none of that stuff is going to bring a breakthrough for the person who's spiritually blind. They're, they're blind. They can't see it. They can't see it unless God opens their eyes by his grace. It doesn't matter how good the argument is. They're literally blind. You can yell at a blind person to come and look at something all you want. It's out of their control. They're incapable of seeing it. Romans 1.29 says, Although they knew God, although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They were darkened. The word repent, actually means to change your mind. The word repent doesn't mean to come forward at a church service and cry. The word repent means to change your mind. When the Bible says repent, it means change your mind about believing you're God. Change your mind about believing you're the best person to run your life. Change your mind about believing you're good enough on your own to be judged by God and come up clean. Change your mind. And Paul says to us, he says, listen, you've got the Holy Spirit in you. Don't take a step back by living your life only through your mind. Don't take a step back and evaluate the biggest decisions in your life using only your mind and not involving the Holy Spirit. Paul says that's a step back for you. Your biggest decisions should involve your mind being led by the Holy Spirit. 
Submit your biggest decisions to the Lord. In verse 19, Paul continues describing these people who are blind, and he says, who being past feeling, you're going to want to underline past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. After Dr. Donald Barnhouse, the classic preacher from a generation ago, shared a message about the repercussions of sin, a young man approached him, and I've heard this before, and said, I sin, but it, uh, it doesn't seem to bother me at all. I, I'm not haunted by it. I don't have this conviction that you're talking about. I don't get depressed about it. It doesn't really bother me. I feel nothing. Dr. Barnhouse looked at him and said, tell me, son, what would happen if I dropped an 800-pound weight on the body of a dead man? Would he feel it? Would he be in pain? Would it bother him? Of course not, said the young man. That's the point, said Dr. Barnhouse. If you don't feel the weight of sin, if it's not heavy upon you, if it's not having an impact on you, it's because you're spiritually dead. You're past feeling. That's how bad it is. And yet the world says, in the futility of their mind, no, 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 I'm, I'm free. I've been liberated from my conscience to do what I really want to do. No, you're, you're dead. You're just dead, and this is the evidence. You're past feeling. Leprosy is a terrible disease, but it's not a painful disease. Leprosy causes the nerves in your body to die and lose all feeling. If a leper cuts his foot, he doesn't even feel it. That's the problem. The wound becomes infected, and the consequences will be horrific. That's what happens to the leper. They get endless infections in their body. Their body starts breaking down because they're not caring for the wounds that they get. We have pain because that's the body saying, you need to do something about this. When that pain is removed, a person no longer maintains their body, no longer cares for it. Sooner or later, parts of the leper begin falling off, fingers, toes, things like this, as they lose all feeling. When you find yourself in that place of spiritual deadness, when you don't feel convicted or disturbed by your sin or your disconnectedness from God, you should be afraid. You should be, you should be very afraid. Because you're not healthy, you're dying, and you can't even feel it. You can't even feel it. And what your prayer needs to be is, God, how can my sensitivity return? How can my sensitivity return? A few years ago, I realized that uh, I was no longer disturbed by violence and pain the way I should be. I just wasn't. I wasn't disturbed by it. I don't know if you've noticed, we, we live in an age where the surest formula for a successful TV show is figure out the most heinous, disturbing, demonic, perverted, violent crimes you can come up with and make a show about them. People will tune in to watch. And if you watch the show, something dramatically changed over the past 30 years. 30 years ago, they'd make a crime show. The person would get killed. It would be like the shadow of the person being stabbed. And the show was about the, the crime being solved. The show today is not about the crime being solved. It's about the crime. It's about the crime. It's why... We don't even need gladiators anymore. We have TV. 
And we tune in for all the same reasons that ancient Rome did, to see the crime. We don't tune in to see them solve the crime. We tune in for the crime. And it just becomes more and more twisted and more and more perverted. Have you seen this show? It's really edgy. Just a way of saying it's way past twisted. And every now and then a new show comes out that trumps all the other ones. It's more twisted. The concept is more perverted. It's more evil. And I realized that I'd just been consuming this stuff. And, and violence and pain just was not disturbing me. I, I don't know about you, but when I, when I encounter tragedy in the world, I want to be moved by it. I want to be moved by it. I want to have compassion rise up in me. I don't want to be dead. I don't want to be desensitized on the inside. I want to be disturbed by it. I want that part inside of me to ache and say, this, this is not as it should be. Because God put that part in there to make us long for him and long for heaven. And I don't want to be spiritually dead. And I, and I cut that stuff out of my life. And the sensitivity came back. And I just want to challenge you this morning. What are you taking in in your life? And is it increasing your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit? Or is it desensitizing you to the Holy Spirit? You might need to cut some things out of your life so that you can hear God more clearly. It's just that simple. Verse 20, it says, But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him, as the truth is in Jesus. The world embraces greediness and empty-headedness and uncleanness, but Paul says, but you, you've not learned Christ that way. And notice Paul doesn't say, you've not so learned about Christ. He says, you have not so learned Christ. Notice Paul doesn't say, have been taught about Him. He says, have been taught by Him. By him. You know, I'm a huge basketball fan and, and uh, love Steve Nash because he's Canadian. He's like the only really good Canadian basketball player. So uh, love Steve Nash. You know what? I can read all Steve Nash's stats. I can go on NBA.com, watch all the highlights. I can go to L.A., and if he gets over this injury, I can watch him play in the playoffs. And that's the way some people learn about Jesus. They, they read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John 15 times in a row, and they think they know him. They think they know him. But in reality, they only know about him. To learn Christ implies communion and intimacy with him. And how does this happen? How does this happen? It happens when you sit down with the word of God and you don't just say, okay, I need to get through a chapter today so I can check the box. God won't be mad at me. And instead, reading a verse or two and saying, man, that convicts me or that confuses me or that, that reminds me or that, that blesses me. To write down your questions, to, to underline the, the verses where God has spoken to your heart. To stop when God moves you and do business with God. Pray and talk to him about something. And in doing this, you're communing with God. You're relating to Jesus rather than merely learning about him academically. You can read books about Jesus all day and that doesn't mean you know him. It doesn't mean you know him. So whether you go for a walk or lock yourself in the bathroom or go driving to a secluded place, man, go do something every day that allows you to actually talk to God. It'll make all the difference in the world and you'll actually learn Christ. You'll learn Christ. We're not out to learn about Him. We're out to learn Him. We want to know Him. 
We're out of time for today, but, but I want us to just simply ponder a few things as we head into worship and communion. And this time coming up is for this express purpose, for each of us to ask the question, God, what do you want to do in my life? Is there anything you want to say to me? Is there anything you're calling me to give to you? Let me ask you, are there any areas of our lives where you're living, thinking, and processing, making decisions using only your intellect? I'm not saying it's bad to use your mind, but I'm saying be led by the Holy Spirit as you do that. Are there any area of our lives where we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us? We just think, I got this one. I, I, I don't even need to ask you. Bye, 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 bye. I got this. Are there any areas where we haven't prayed, we haven't sought God's guidance in his word on a big decision? Let me tell you, do not make a big decision without fasting about it. Yeah, I, I'm that hardcore. I really believe that. If you're going to get married to somebody, man, you better fast. You want to be sure. I would not make any big decision without fasting because what that does is it says, God, everything adds up on paper, but you know so much more. You hold the future in your hands. God, I submit this to you. Would you lead and guide me in this? You do that. God will bless your decision making. You never know when there's something you don't know. You never know when there's something you don't know, but God knows. Maybe there's an area where we're trying to come up with a a brilliant solution or plan, but we haven't even asked God if he has any input. We have the Holy Spirit in us, and we're called to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you live in the futility of your mind, you feel the burden of everything depending on you. You ever felt that? Any big decisions? Man, I can't blow this decision Don't know how to make this big decision. I hope I'm doing the right thing. You feel all the weight of it. When you're led by the Holy Spirit, you feel the peace of giving everything to God. You give everything to God. Say, God, God, would you just, would you lead me in this decision? And you have the peace of knowing, I prayed, I went to God on this. You don't live the rest of your life going, oh, I hope I made the right decision. Just waiting for the sky to fall. May we know Christ and not merely know about him.